Well, good morning. My name is Dan. If you're uh, relatively new, we welcome you here. If you're in person, so thrilled to be together. If you're watching from, um, uh, you're watching online. We're grateful to have you with us too. Uh, I don't normally open a message like this, but I wanted you. I wanted you to um, hear from me about today's message. So here we go. Today's today's a great message. I mean, terrific. It's going to be a terrific message. I don't know if the delivery is going to be great or terrific, but I can assure you that um, in this content here somewhere, God has something for you. And we all know, right, the book of Ruth is not about you. The Bible's not about you. The Bible is about God. He's revealing himself through the scriptures. But... We're going to experience today that even though the scripture isn't uh, about us, today you're going to experience, I think, something that God has for you. Uh, initially, what we're doing is taking a look at a redemption story, a redemption story. In, in large part, because I have such incredibly thick Christian worldview bias, I see this redemption story show up in all the modern stories that we love. Literature, movies, um, poetry, uh, a good story of any uh, sort, short story. Redemption stories we see right in the scriptures. And and we're going to see that come to life here together today. Um, And really it's helpful to start this way. The question personally about how God is directing us, how God is leading us. Is God helping us along the way as we limp along in our life? Is God steering us into his perfect will? Some people believe that. Some people think that if you tune in uh, intensely enough that your step-by-step God is steering you and you have to tune in. I always think of the uh, scene in Princess Bride with that stick in the forest. You remember that? And no? Just me? Well, let me reenact it for you. So there's this stick in the forest. Um, So some people kind of picture that that's how God's leading you or leading us. And then there's another way of looking at it, which is that God occasionally sends us signs and signals. You just have to decode it. You have to know what you're looking for. And if you can decode uh, the sign, the chime, the the um, coincidence or whatever, you can decode it. You can see how God is speaking to you through this um, code or signal. And then there's other people that might say that, that, that God really isn't doing any of that. He's not steering us or sending us any codes or signals. He, is, he sees us, but he leaves us. He, from a distance, is watching from the outside, letting us kind of do our own thing, and, and uh, he's maybe impersonal, or, or, or at the very least, he's, he's um, uh, disengaged. So your view of how God is working in your life might be somewhere in between. It might be a combination of those in some ways. But at a time in the Old Testament, when we look for God to be working through his people um, and Specifically, through kings and judges, the country, the people of Israel, 
we get to see how God works through ordinary people, not exclusively or even primarily through uh, kings and judges and rulers. He works through ordinary people. And so what is um, the book of Ruth story? Really, it starts with a question. And the question in the book of Ruth is, how is God involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives? You'll notice that this question doesn't say, is God involved? The question is, how is He involved? In what ways is God showing up? In what ways is God making Himself known and present in our lives? Um, Here in the book of Ruth, we have a couple, Naomi and her husband. They flee the country, their home country of Israel that's facing a famine, uh, likely a discipline from God. Uh, It was during the time that their country was doing what was right in their own eyes. Not in God's eyes, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. God uh, is disciplining them. There's this famine in the land, and they escape to Moab where they had been warned. Everybody knows what what were they warned? Don't go to Moab, right? Do not go to Moab. Uh, If you go to Moab, you're going to end up marrying their daughters, and then eventually that's going to lead to worshiping their gods. And so, uh, what does Naomi and Elimelech do? They go to Moab, and they settle down. And uh, uh, not too much longer, we find out in the story that Naomi is, uh, loses her husband and her son-in-laws. They pass away, and she decides after the famine ends in Israel that she's going to go back to her homeland And she tells her daughter-in-laws, I want you to turn back and stay in Moab so that you have a better chance of living the life of security and prosperity that you deserve. And um, Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, she turns back, but Ruth says, I am not leaving you. She commits herself and devotes herself to go with Naomi, and the two of them go back to Israel. And so now Naomi the Israelite has with her a daughter-in-law who is a foreign widow. And she's back with her in Israel. And there in Israel, we see God, through the work of His hidden hands, begins to provide in divine ways that help bring healing to Naomi and help bring healing to Ruth. And he sends them a seemingly ordinary farmer who is a a man of wealth, uh, a man of reputation. And the faithfulness here in the book of Ruth, the faithfulness of God not only benefits Naomi and her family, but goes on to bless the world through the lineage of David as soon there is a truer and better redeemer that comes along through the lineage of Naomi. And of course, we're looking forward, we're looking ahead to Jesus. Now, we get to look in and watch how God uses the obedience of ordinary people, regular folks, in order to fill an an empty widow's uh, emptiness, and how he brings healing and he changes her life forever. So today's question in chapter 3 is, where can I find rest when I'm growing anxious and weary? I hear a lot uh, recently about the increasing levels of anxiety in regular people. Whether it's related to um, our own individual homes, 
questions now about, am I going to be able to keep up with inflation? Can I pay for the stuff we need? I've given up on the stuff we want, but can I pay for the stuff that we need? Uh, There's anxieties around how long can I endure through this stormy marriage of mine? Some people who are single parenting, they are running on fumes, they are running out of gas, and they are just trying to figure out, how am I going to hold on? I can, I'm barely holding it together, and I have all kinds of anxiety related to, can I do this? And some weariness over what I've been doing. And still, other people wondering anxiously, what is going to happen to my aging and ailing parents, grandparents? I don't know clearly all the ways in which you all, our church family, is experiencing anxiety and weariness. I would be willing to guess that there is some level of anxiety and weariness in everybody. And if not for you, um, now, maybe in the future, or maybe you've just come through it in the past, I don't know, some of you might be thinking, I don't know if ever... I'll be able to rest. Now, when we talk about rest here in the book of Ruth, we're not talking rest like, I hope I get a day off from work or I hope I'm able to um, get away for a weekend. We're talking about a different kind of rest because there's busy rest, right, where my calendar's full and I'm super active. And then there's another kind of rest, which is almost always the kind of rest we see in the scripture, and it's inner rest. It's inner rest. Contentment gratitude, peace, and joy related to my relationship or my right standing with God. And so uh, the rest that's offered here is rest on the inside. Where can I find rest when I'm growing anxious and weary? And the big idea today is that we'll always be able to find it. We always get it. We'll always know it. And there's a reason why we can always rest. And this is the reason, because God never rests. He is always faithfully at work doing everything we need and even more. And we see this throughout the book of Ruth everywhere. We see his hidden hand in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Lord faithfully providing for Ruth and Naomi, but it still wasn't clear what was going to happen to Ruth. It still wasn't clear what was going to happen to Naomi. Once the harvest was over, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 1, all Naomi wanted. You probably won't remember this, so I'll show it to you. Naomi really has one thing that she has in mind for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who came with her from Moab back to Israel. And she wanted something very specific. It might be something that all moms and mother-in-laws want for their, um, for their own children, and it was their own security. I don't mean Naomi wanted her to get a concealed carry permit. It's not what I'm talking about, FYI. But there's this word security. Check this out. She says, this is, this is all the way back in Ruth. Are you with me? All the way back in Ruth 1, verse 9. Here's what she says. May the Lord bless you, she's talking to her daughter-in-laws, with the security of another marriage. So the mother-in-law has this one single focused prayer and hope and dream for her 
uh, widowed daughter-in-laws, and that is that they would, in fact, find marriage. And now, when you say the security of marriage, what you mean is, may you, daughter-in-law, find rest again. In other words, um, may you find rest from your anxieties and your weariness of not knowing how you're going to provide for yourself or whether or not you're going to be protected from this crazy um, world because of how vulnerable a a foreign widow would be. So, um, now, her solution to get rid of anxiety and weariness was a secure marriage. Some people might say, that's where my anxieties and weariness is coming from, Naomi. Um. But she here in in chapter 2, we see that this kind of ends on a downer because there's no real plans for Ruth and Boaz. We don't know if they end up together. There's kind of this growing respect for each other. They're seeing the best in one another. He is providing for her even though um, she's only a worker in the field that is he's allowed to. um, And we're left to wonder, really, will anything happen between the two of them? How many of you love a good romance story? Anybody? Don't be afraid to admit it. Men, don't be afraid to admit it. All their hands went up after that. Oh, thank you. A good romance story here. Guess who's not going to sit around and wait to see if Ruth and Boaz get together? Guess who's not going to sit around and just, just hope? The mother-in-law. She's not going to sit around and say, you know what? Hey, you know, uh, I hope you don't mess it up. I hope you don't. Uh, I hope you, you you kind of fall into one another's arms. Instead, Naomi comes up with something so terrific, and she says, "This is so great." She says, "It's time. It's time." In Ruth chapter three, after all of Boaz's care for Ruth and care for Naomi, and they're still not together. They're still not this this. Uh, um, permanent, secure marriage plan in place. One day, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, it is time that I found you a permanent home. That means secure marriage. So that you will be provided for. And at the center of their plan is this main character, Boaz. At the center of their plan, they have already met this man named Boaz, who is described as a worthy man. He has all that they need in terms of wealth and reputation. He is single. He's also a potential redeemer and a man of mercy and justice. And so he lavishes kindness on Ruth, loving kindness, tons of generosity, for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi recognizes this could be the dude. This could be him. This could be the man of your dreams. Um, In order to understand this plan, though, we have to take a pause, and we have to look at this main character, Boaz. To help you better understand the book of Ruth, check this out. Boaz is the main character. And there's a description that Naomi has used to describe Boaz, and it's called something very specific. Let me give you the three ways that we see it show up in the different versions of the uh, translations of the Bible. It's a guardian redeemer. Naomi has said this dude, Boaz, is a family redeemer. He's a guardian redeemer. How many of you better remember it this way, based on the way that you grew up in the church, it would be a translation, it would be kinsman redeemer, right? They're all the same means the same thing. Family redeemer, kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer. Um, And in this context, redemption involves a widow 
marrying her husband's next closest, closest relative, right? So her husband dies, and she marries his next closest relative in order to keep the property in the family and in order to provide an heir to all the wealth, right? And so it would be somebody who was the closest relative. So far, her plan starts with this main character, Boaz. That's the beginning of the plan. And here's what she says. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by, by the way, if you're a single lady and your mother-in-law says to you, have you thought of so-and-so? He's a close relative. You remember when I said the Bible is not about you? <laughs> right? Here's a great example. So um, we have a different culture, right? This culture here is very, very uh, vivid and specific. So he's been very kind, she says of Boaz, by letting you gather grain with his young women. And so... Because Boaz is a redeemer, he's a relative, I should say, she obviously believes that there's a good chance that this whole thing is going to work out based on his relationship to the family. But the harvest time has gone by. So far, Boaz, nothing. He hasn't called, hasn't returned any texts. We don't know what's going on with Boaz. We don't know where he's at quite yet, although he's sending signals that he has esteem and respect for her. So she tells Ruth, she says, Ruth, I'm going to make a plan Uh, I want you to go to him at night. I want you to invite him to marry you. And I want you to um, eventually, hopefully, we'll get a response from him as our guardian redeemer. But the question is, will he? Will he respond? And and in the next four stages of the story, really quick, we see the story move right along. And this story here gives us four stages in this redemption story. And here's what... Here's what Ruth says to Naomi. She says, I will do everything you say. Tell me the plan. I'm going to do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night, and she followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law basically says, Ruth, freshen up. Go down to the threshing floor where, the, where, where um, Boaz would be working to, to curate the, the harvest. And I want you to wait until he's in a good mood, and then he falls asleep. Now, again, there's some... When I tell you what she says next, I want you to just brace yourself, okay? There's some culture clashes here. And she says, and after he falls asleep, I want you to, this is going to be, I just want to brace you. I want you to uncover his feet and then lay down next to him. So there's a culture thing going on here, right? The Bible is not about you, but it's for you. So evidently, uncovering a man's feet like this could be a way in which you gently wake him up. How many of you would say, if your feet are uncovered, that might, be, that might work for me? Anybody? Nobody? Any, no one wants to think about your feet? That's okay. That's okay. So apparently this is a nonverbal gesture. Some people say it's not. Some commentators on the Bible say it's not just a way to wake someone up at night. This is actually a customary way of requesting marriage, of basically saying, um, you know, I'm available for marriage if, if you are interested or we're also available. Now, um, so single girls, I mean, you have to be careful whose feet you uncover. You really do. You can't just go around uncovering feet because you just never know. Just 
obviously. So listen to, and then what Naomi says is, after you wake him up, he's going to see you there, and then I just want you to wait for his instructions. He's going to say something, he's going to do something, he's going to have some instructions, and I want you to wait. And um, this actually is a risky plan. This is a very risky plan that she makes. Many men in this situation would have a terribly negative response to this. When you think about the possibility of just him waking up and freaking out at some woman in the dark laying at his feet, and he kind of wakes up jarringly and rejects her and says, you know, what are you doing here? And then wakes up in kind of a groggy rage. It's very possible. And also, he might be, uh, she might discover that there's a reason why that he hasn't proposed to her yet, Right? He might, uh, uh, there might actually be questions in his mind like, why hasn't any other family redeemer redeemed her yet? He might be thinking, um, what if it's her reputation as a foreign widow? We also uh, know that he might here wake up in a rage and demand to know um, how she got in there, who let her in. There's no reason to believe that he quite possibly couldn't have accused her of being a prostitute or prostituting herself. And we also know that this plan could also lead to the horrifying experience for Ruth of rape. Because she's entering here at night, there's a significant threat of sexual violence here. In fact, think about this. The danger of this violence she's already been warned against uh, relative to working in the fields with Boaz. She's already been warned two separate times. Naomi says, be very careful about the men that you're working with in this field. And Boaz says, I'm going to give you some special circumstances so you don't have to worry about my workers. And then he warns his workers, leave her alone. So there's this p- real possibility through rejection or his own rage or, the, or this terrible circumstance, the, the possibility of rape, that this plan goes terrible. These are great risks. Now, the riskiness of this plan basically exposes the strategy um, that she, the, the, the strategy that Naomi condemns exposes the one thing that will make it secure. It gives us the opportunity to see what can Boaz be trusted. Because really, what we see here is this, that Naomi's plan for rest depended entirely upon the trustworthiness and integrity of Boaz. This is a risky plan, and what they're saying is, we're going to put all of this risk, we're going to take these risks, and we're going to put all of the outcomes in the um, hands of Boaz. And hopefully, this is going to go right. And by the way, there's this kind of this sensuality that emerges out of this story as you think about how this plan goes down at night and her sneaking in and lying next to him and, and, and so on. But actually, it serves to show us the purity of both of these people and the reasons that you see that these are very, very special people. So there's this tension building. And it's important because as this tension builds, you get to see them demonstrate their purity. Naomi gives these instructions, and as Ruth wholeheartedly accepts them, they're both displaying amazing, intense trust in Boaz's integrity. And we're invited in such a way. We're invited into the story. When you read this story properly, we're invited to live in such a way that all of our life's plans, all of the risks that we're taking, that we are living in such a way as to depend on the kindness, 
to depend on the integrity and the redeeming power of Jesus. We are to see that this is for us to make our plans and live our lives taking the risks that we take for trusting, throwing ourselves and being fully and completely and totally dependent upon the character and nature of Jesus. And we see God using Boaz to to illustrate that. And to the extent that we know that we can trust Jesus, we will take risks to serve Him, obey Him, to follow Him, to receive Him and trust Him. We take those risks depending on the level of trust that we have for Him. And when we don't, and when we're suspicious about throwing ourselves into the loving hands to trust Jesus, it exposes in us perhaps a too limited view of who Jesus is, too small, too weak, too inaccurate or blurry. And we get to see this lived out in the life here. And when we see Jesus as a true and better uh, Boaz, then we start to throw ourselves at this Redeemer, at this Bridegroom who's Jesus and His perfect integrity and His perfect kindness. We joyfully lean on His character and expect that no matter what risk we take, if it is to please Jesus, He will always and forever come through because He's trustworthy. And we're invited to see Boaz as Jesus. Now, after Boaz had finished eating and drinking, this is the, kind of the description of the plan, and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain, and he went to sleep. Then Ruth came, quietly uncovered his feet, and he laid down. How many of you want to know what, go, what happens here? Can you feel it building? Can you, can you sense uh, the possible um, tension as Boaz starts to feel the air on his feet? What is going to happen? Around midnight, this is all going down. And here's what we see. This is so good. I love this about Ruth. Ruth actually steps out here, and she boldly goes beyond the plan. So Ruth here, it's not enough for her to just follow Naomi's plan and uncover his feet and lay down. She's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going for it. Ruth goes for it. Ruth says... I am launching out with this boldness in my faith. I am launching out to take the initiative. And look what she says. When he wakes up, she blurts out, spread the corner of your covering over me if you are my family redeemer. So in the nighttime where he finally wakes up, she's like, spread the co- your covering over me. And we've already seen him mention to her that she is resting in the, in the wings, the covering of God who he says is Yahweh. And here she says, spread the corner. Now, this is another cultural thing that that we have to understand. She is proposing to Boaz. She is um, taking the initiative to propose marriage. When she says, spread your garment, she is saying, cover me with the security of your marriage. Be my husband. How spectacular is this bold and risky faith that she's demonstrated And Ruth continues to amaze us. One commentator summarizes, by the way, what Ruth has just done this way. And I wanted you to just kind of get an insight here on what's happening. Why is this so risky and bold? Look what the commentator said. Keep this in mind. Here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her. Got that? A Moabite making the demand of an Israelite. A woman making the demand of a man. A poor person making the demand of a rich man. You feel it? 
a foreign widow saying to a wealthy landowner, marry me. Why is she doing that? What, what is compelling her? Because she has a confident faith and trust in the character and the trustworthy integrity of Boaz, her potential redeemer. The focus is on him and all that he has demonstrated. Now, is it a kind of a foreign naivete that we're seeing? Is it just her blind devotion to her mother-in-law? Is it another sign of the hidden hand of God? Now, Ruth, who's entirely dependent upon Boaz, is asking him to become part of God's permanent and life-changing plan for her life. She's asking him, hey, would you let God use you to bring life transformation? And we can imagine how fast Ruth's heart is beating because we don't know what Boaz is going to say. All we know is that he has a pattern of kindness and generosity, but we don't know what he's going to say at this crucial matter of decision. Let's see how he reacts. Then the Lord, he says, the Lord bless you. It's a good start. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Ruth, by the way, much younger than Boaz. Boaz exclaimed, you are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. He is commending her that she hasn't run off and just married anybody who's younger or anybody who's rich. He's like, you ain't no gold digger. In some ways. And he commends her. And here we are left to marvel at the purity of the two of them. They don't have some one-night fling together. He says, Lord, bless you. You are even more devoted to your family than I've ever seen before. Ruth doesn't manipulate him or entice him in any way to make something happen in just one uh, shallow way. Instead, Boaz says, you have, in fact, demonstrated that you are a very, very devoted, loving person. And we see that Boaz responds to Ruth's bold trust with his life-changing promises and provision. This is what he says. He says, he makes this promise to her to do everything that she has requested. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. I will do it. Don't you worry. Don't you grow weary. I know that you're concerned, full of anxiety over what's going to happen, your future, whether or not things are going to work out. And he says, I will do what is necessary. I have it within my power to meet the needs that you're expressing and to calm and settle your heart of all the insecurity, all the unknowns of your future. I have at my disposal, I have the power to meet all of your needs and to soothe all of your anxieties. What if this is just a type of Jesus in the Old Testament? What if Boaz is speaking to her words that come from our Creator through the person and through the work of Jesus where he says, I, don't, I know how unnerved and amped up you are about the unknowns in your life, but I will do what is necessary. And then he goes on to say, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. I'll do it. I'll be the one. I'll be the tool in the hand of God to bring you the uh, stability and security that you need. Now, there is a huge problem. The, the problem is that there is a relative who is closer to Ruth than Boaz. 
or closer to Naomi than Boaz. And so that's possible. And what, what um, we see here is that Boaz actually says, I'm going to actually have a conversation with this other redeemer who's closer, who's entitled, and see if, in fact, he's planning to redeem you. Um, that eventually does not be worked out, and we get to see this plan start to move on. So can Boaz be trusted? Well, let's, um, follow through. let's see if he follows through on his promises and see what Naomi thinks. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? This is so good because the modern translations say what happened. Now, it's easy to understand that when Ruth comes back after midnight, right, and you, and you think, what, what in the world happened? And you're looking for her to tell you the story. In the Jewish Bible, the way that this is translated more accurately in the complete Jewish Bible is this. Naomi actually says to her, who are you? Who are you? By the way, we know she knows who her daughter-in-law is. What is she asking? She's saying, who are you now? Are you still a helpless, insecure, foreign widow? And are we still full of bitter emptiness? Or, or did Boaz commit himself to you and change, transform, completely overhaul and flip over our life circumstances and fortunes? Who are you? Do you, are, are, uh, do you belong yet to this family redeemer? It's such a powerful question that we miss uh, without some kind of help from some commentary. And she's basically saying, has everything turned around for us? Is it different for us? So then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. She says, I know this Boaz. We've been seeing all of these ways in which his character is trustworthy, and he's been faithful. His loving kindness goes on and on. And I know for a fact that he won't rest until he's settled these things. Another example of how Scripture is not really about you. Um, instead, it's about God. God, represented here by Boaz, will not rest until he has fulfilled and followed through on all the promises he's made to his own children. Even more than this Boaz, he is always working with infinitely supreme hidden hands to keep his promises to you, to his whole family, to all of his children. He's at work. You can rest. Get this. Try to take this in. You can rest. You have the ability to have inner rest today and every day, and there's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to grow yourself weary. Why? Because we know that God throughout the Bible has demonstrated this, that He will not ever, He never rests until things are settled. And how does He settle them? He settles them His way. He settles them His way, which is always the best way. I mean, isn't it true, when you look back on the ways in which you wanted things to go, is there anybody else who looks back on your own life and you think to yourself, I'm so glad it didn't work out the way I wanted it to? Can you think of those moments? Think of who you had a crush on in college or high school. And where are they now? And you're like, God, you, sp you spared me decades of heartache. Every time you see him show up on Facebook, you're like, hallelujah. That's someone else's problem. Which also means I might be someone else's problem. I never thought of that until right now, at this very moment. What a turd. Woo! We have, um, we have to read these texts knowing 
that God is showing up in these texts. He is showing himself and he's pointing ahead to the work of Jesus. And Boaz's provision here is so important. So here's what he does. He says, you know, I'm not going to rest until things are settled today. And then he does two things. He, um, he, he sends Ruth off before it's light. Do you know why he sends her off before it's light? He's protecting her reputation. And what he says to her is, look, the, the sun's going to come up and, and we don't want people seeing you slipping out of my, uh, the, the threshing floor here and making people wonder, like, was that Ruth coming out of the, his... Um, anyway, so he protects her and says, you've got to get off and get out before, before uh, light to protect her dignity and reputation. And then he says, but before you go, I want you to take this gift. And he has her kind of spread out this garment and he puts on her. The Scripture says he takes this grain and he puts this grain in and he has, it's so heavy, there's so much of it, he has to put it on her. And traditionally, it might be kind of on her head or it might be kind of in this backpack kind of way. But he puts on her and she carries back to Naomi 60 pounds of grain. 60 pounds! As a look, as a down, point, a down payment into how much abundance and overflow and, and how much more that God is going to provide to her through him in the future. And he just says, here's just a little down payment. Naomi can rest knowing how much God is providing through me. And he tells her that um, this is a gift. She doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't have to work for it. This is a special gift, not based on anything that she's done. Naomi once described herself as empty, right? You remember that? I am bitter, empty. And here we see the beginning of her journey of her being restored, of um, her being empty and alone and being without any grain. And now here Ruth comes back to her with an abundance, an overflow of everything that she could possibly want. She was childless and hungry and now she has more than she could ever imagine. And through Ruth and Boaz, she's taken this journey as God's healing her bitterness and as God's healing her emptiness. Because our God is a restoring, redeeming, healing God. And he's not just at work in the Old Testament. He's at work now in your life through ordinary means. His divine, supremely capable hidden hands are at work to bring healing to your heart. Whether we see it or not. God doesn't even have to mention his own name to you and he's still at work just like he is in the book of Ruth. Her days of bitter emptiness are soon to be over. And we're going to see this, that Jesus responds to our bold faith in the same way. The last phase of the redemption story comes up in the New Testament. Jesus responds. He has already seen us in our need. He's already seen us helplessly sitting at his feet. He's already seen us approach him, and when we approach Jesus, relatively speaking, we're just like a foreign widow. We don't bring anything. We have nothing to offer. The only thing that we have to offer Jesus is our complete and utter, entirely dependent self, our empty bitterness. And when we approach him, he sees us, and he spreads his robe of righteousness over us, and he covers us, providing us everything that we need to approach God in heaven everything we need to be justified. And he makes us his own. He adopts us and redeems us into his own family. So what does that mean? So now what? So let your trust for Jesus 
resemble their trust for Boaz. Let that trust that they have in Boaz inspire you to trust Jesus the same way. Jesus says, if you could hear him, if he could come through the Scriptures and speak to us with the, with the resonating witness of the Holy Spirit, he would say, don't worry about a thing, my child. I will do what's necessary. I will do what's necessary. I never rest. So you can rest. You can rest on the inside. There's nothing you bring to the relationship. All you're bringing is your trust and your dependence. Trust and dependence. I have lots of dependence. I have a little bit of trust, and that's how Jesus receives you. That's how he receives us. And all you need is um, found by your full and wholehearted dependence on Jesus. Secondly, look for your most fulfilling identity in your union with Jesus. Look for your most fulfilling identity in your union with Jesus. So this is an appropriate place to ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Who do you belong to? Are you yours? Do you belong to the culture? Do you belong to a political party? Do you belong to a team? Do you belong to a community or a club or a hobby group? Or do you, where do you find yourself identifying as that's who I belong to? And would you, you might even say, I'm in, I don't belong anywhere, I'm just displaced. There's a sense of loneliness that is so deep, I don't know if it's ever going to change. And I ask you this question today, would you be open? Would you be open to be received just as you are? Would you be open to approach God like a foreign widow, sitting helplessly at his feet? Would you be open, coming with all of your uh, emptiness? He willingly transforms your identity. When he adopts you and he makes you a part of his own family, when God makes you his own child, he shares with you an an eternal inheritance that's set aside and represented in the glory of Jesus and it's shared by all of his kids. That's what's at stake when we belong to Jesus, when we find our identity in our union with Jesus. He willingly transforms you into his own child as a part of his own family. Lastly, so... What about focusing on resting? Resting in Jesus' faithful, loving kindness. And what's happening now that's wearying you? What might be wearing you down? What might be costing you all kinds of precious thoughts and peace? Single parenting? The despair of a uh, broken or breaking marriage? Perhaps it's the prodigal loved one that you're so brokenhearted over. It could be so much more. The simple question, what's going to happen tomorrow? If you follow the headlines, you might have this question out uh, every now and then. What's coming? What in the world is going down? How is it going to look? Is it going to resolve? And I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you today to focus on a secure future, a secure future that Jesus has secured by filling you, if you trust Him, with an indwelling Holy Spirit that seals you as His child now and also forever in heaven for eternity. That's what we get. That's who we are. And that's what He has for us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we're so grateful that You're at work. And my heart goes out to all of our church family who is just wrestling through loneliness, uncertainty. 
just a level of weariness. And I pray today, God, that we wouldn't have to look too far to sense that you're near, you're trustworthy, that you're never at rest. And you're always at work providing what we need, whether it's provision, what we eat, shelter, whether it's a community of people who takes us in and accepts us who we are, whether it's the grace to bring us breath in our lungs and the sunrise over our head every day. You are always at work providing what we need, and we pray today, God, that that would come alive new and fresh for somebody this morning. We're so grateful for the picture that you're painting for us of your faithfulness, of your loving kindness, of your mercy and justice. And as we approach you like a helpless foreign widow, we pray that you would find in us someone completely dependent and trust for you. I wonder this morning if while we're just praying together, there'd be somebody who'd slip your hand up and say, Pastor, this this is a timely message. In fact, I sense God telling me in some way, just it's resonating with me, this is what I need this morning. Would you raise your hand? I want to know who am I praying for? This is what I need. Anybody else? This is what I need. God is speaking to me somehow. I just sense it. I know it. This is what I need. My hope and joy and rest is going to come in total dependence on a God who says, I will do it. Thank you, Father. God, you see all these hands that are raised, and we pray today that as you stir us to put our trust in Jesus, maybe it's the first time, and you bring someone to saving faith, and then yet others, there are those who are saying, I am just sensing you at work, Father, and I need you to realign my heart. As we sing this song together, God, I pray for realignment. Pray that you'd revive, and then you'd be at work in redeeming those whose lives have been perhaps damaged with bitter emptiness. We thank you for doing it in Jesus' name. Would you stand, church family, and and join us if you're watching online and sing these songs of celebration and these songs of rest in who Jesus is for us.